Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a professor at the esteemed Berkeley School of Music, an accomplished producer and studio engineer, and the author of a book entitled, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Hello and welcome, Dr. Susan Rogers. Hi, Mike. Nice to be here with you. Um, tell me about that intro music. The drums sounded great. The guitar sounded great. What were you playing on that? Uh, well, it's kind of hard to say in this day of age. In this day and age, I played everything except for the drums, but oh. no, but nobody actually played the drums because oh, we just. Oh, I see. I, I I wrote the drums, which in this case was a steady uh, was a steady uh. tom build. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot going on there. On their drum. Very good. Thank you. Coming from you, that means a lot. Yeah. Well, good choices. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I'm excited to have you here. I'm excited to talk about some of the stuff from your professional past. I'm excited to talk about your much more recent book. But before we get into that, I want to talk about how you got into the music business, the story of how you uh, came to your profession, as outlined in the beginning of your book, is almost literally unbelievable i know it's not it's it's a story with a lot of twists and turns um as briefly as it is possible can you sketch out your the evolution of your professional trajectory from seeing a concert at the los angeles forum to working a concert at the forum yeah bullet points are i was a typical kid who loved music but um had zero interest in becoming a performer or a songwriter just wanted to make records, had zero chance of having that happen because of a young woman in the 1970s, you didn't see women engineers, God forbid, producers. Uh, I was married when I was 17 to a person who was terrible. He was jealous and possessive, but he gave me permission to go to a concert, which happened to be Led Zeppelin, Song Remains the Same tour at the Forum in Los Angeles. I was having the time of my life, but the person I was married to had insisted that I be home by 1030. Being naive, I hadn't known that they're not even going to take the stage until nine o'clock. They're just getting warmed up by 1030. So I had to leave that concert to avoid any trouble at home, but I made a little vow that I was going to come back to that forum in Los Angeles someday, and I was going to mix live sound for an amazing band, which was just ridiculous. It's like saying I'm going to dance on the moon because how am I going to mix live sound? I don't know any musicians. I'm, I'm a young woman, right? I don't know anybody. But I did manage to make that happen uh, eight years later. Um, my journey took me first escaping the person I was married to, entering a, a business as an audio trainee in Hollywood, becoming an audio technician who repairs consoles and tape machines back in the analog era, getting hired by my favorite artist in the world, Prince, to be his full-time technician, being moved into the engineering chair 
by Prince, being his engineer, going on tour on the Purple Rain tour, where we did seven sold-out nights at the Forum. And uh, I was actually not mixing front of house, but I, I had, I think, the better gig. I was recording the show with a mobile recording truck, uh, recording it for posterity, as, as I did often on the road with him. That's amazing. As I told you when I reached out to you initially, I've just been listening to the live release that was put out from that tour. Is it safe to assume you recorded the show that they just put out with Prince and the Revolution? Yeah, that live show, I believe, was Syracuse, New York. It was near the end of our Purple Rain tour. And I remember that night. That was that was pretty great. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, as, a, as a songwriter, I have, I mean, I have a, a number of questions about Prince, hopefully not the ones that you hear all the time. Um, I'm interested in his workflow as a songwriter. Um, somebody so incredibly prolific on another podcast that I did, we talked about the, the four records that he put out either with his name on them or semi-anonymously in like a 12-month period of time. Did you, did you see him write? He strikes me as more of a show up at the studio with everything written kind of person. If that's the case, when did he write to the extent that you know? How did he write? Did he always write quickly? Did he have songs that had a long gestation period? How could that be possible when you're cranking out 50 songs per year? Yeah, good questions. Prince was what we call in neuroscience a hyper-creative, meaning he had a couple of busted circuits in his brain that meant that his creative ideas were flowing nonstop, where other people might have a little faucet, he had a fire hose of creativity. So he didn't, or he rarely demoed anything that would just strike him as a waste of time, nor did he write music uh, out on, on notation paper. So the way he wrote was to record. Half the time he'd come into the studio with lyrics and melody. He would um, make up something on piano, sometimes on guitar. He'd write out the lyrics on a notebook, bring it into the studio, and and we'd start from there. But at least 50% of the time, if not more, he just started with a groove. He was a genius with melody. So he might have a groove in mind, and he would just go to his LM1 drum machine, get sounds, and just come up with a groove. And once that groove was down on analog tape, then he could uh, then he work on chord changes, or he might take that groove and it might inspire a melody. But sometimes he just he just laid down stuff to dance to when. The song was halfway done. He would uh, put it on cassette and take it out to the car. He loved to write lyrics in the car. He'd play that cassette in the car. He'd write his lyrics. He'd come back in, do his vocals, and finish it up. The songs that he's most famous for, the, the ones that were commercially successful, were more often than not written in advance before he came into the studio. Although, he wrote so fast. <laughs> he the song Kiss, for example, one of his biggest selling singles of all time. We were in the middle of recording a different song. And uh, Mark Brown, his bassist, who was working with a protege band, Maserati, came into our room, Studio 3 at Sunset Sound, and said, uh, we need another song. Do you have anything lying around? And Prince said, no, let me just write something. <laughs> just grabbed his acoustic guitar, went into the other room, fiddled around, had a notebook, wrote the lyrics. We demoed it really quickly sent it by demo it. I mean, we, we, he came up with a drum groove yeah. and we laid down just a basic acoustic guitar part and a guide vocal, sent it next door to those guys, those guys at studio two. And next thing we know, they uh, 
took that song around the corner, polished it up, Prince took the song back. Uh, but this example of the sorts of artworks he'd do that we'd call gesture sketches. Sometimes a song just comes out like a sneeze. It just comes out really fast. Yeah. He did a lot of those. Other times he would labor over things and sometimes not get it. Sometimes pieces ended up in the vault only to be resurrected later when he could reapproach them. I want to ask you about that vault. I had a girlfriend with uh, far better music taste than I and really eclectic music. I remember her telling me the Beastie Boys are great. And I'm like, you mean the Fight for Your Right to Party guys? And she goes, no, 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 no. Forget that album. They got good after that. And this is before the rest of the world was clued into what she was clued into. She introduced me to this, again, Prince. And I'm like, the 1999 guy. I thought we all enjoyed him when we were kids and, and moved on. And she said, well, no, inside of all of his, he signed a really bad record contract. And inside of all of his albums, it always says, may you live to see the dawn. And I say, okay, what's that? She says, once he realized he's locked in this bad deal, he starts putting out mediocre stuff on, on, on the label. And, and the day that he's free of that contract, he's going to unleash. That's the dawn. He's going to unleash all this stuff that's waiting in the vault. Now you are largely credited with sort of building the vault was there was my girlfriend she's lovely but was she crazy in that regard how great is the trove of unreleased stuff that the world still hasn't heard from prince at least from the era that you were involved with which does seem to have been creatively his pinnacle right let me add um let me correct some of the some of the uh details in that sure. in that story and add my own uh we were smoking. We were smoking a lot of pop when we had these conversations. You need to. You need okay. To know that. Um, the Dawn was a movie that he was planning. Oh, okay. He he was planning several movies. He wanted to make albums. He wanted to make movies. So after Purple Rain, he had others lined up, and uh, he was thinking of a big epic project to be called The Dawn, and it would be a movie and it would be an album, just like Purple Rain was both a movie and an album. He wasn't quite ready for it at the time he did Purple Rain, so he would write in his liner notes, may you live to see the dawn. That, that was his plan. He did not have a bad record deal with Warner Brothers. He had a bad record deal later on, mm. but not with Warner Brothers. He was signed when he was like 18 years old or 19 to a yeah. seven-album deal with Warner Brothers. They made a lot of money together, and they uh, renewed his contract, of course. Trouble with his label began a little bit later in life. And so there was a period in his life in the 90s where he did just release a whole bunch of stuff in order to get out of a contract and move on. So that part is true, but it didn't happen during the, the Warner Brothers era. That's that's when he was, he was at his peak. So the vault started when uh, I was working for him early in my time with him, and he would just ask me to pull certain tapes and his stuff was spread out everywhere. So I needed to have everything all in one place so I could find it. And I began gathering and then cataloging all of his titles. When we built and planned Paisley Park Studios, we planned for an actual bank vault down in the basement that could be a storm shelter because they get uh, tornadoes in Minnesota, but could also house safely all of his tapes. It grew so fast that by the 90s, they couldn't even shut the door to it. It was just overflowing with tapes. Do you have any opinion about, you know, it seems that there's been a change in tack in, in releasing uh, legacy stuff from him now that Prince is no longer with us. Do you think things 
have come out or will come out that he did not want to see released. And I, does it ultimately matter if Prince wrote some terrific song, but it was about a girl he preferred to forget or whatever the idiosyncratic reason was? If there's a great classic song sitting there and he never would have released it, but the family or whoever's controlling the estate does, do you have a problem with that? It's a good question, and I thought about it very carefully after he passed, as did all the folks I know who were associated with him. Anyone who's worked with an important artist has had to ponder, what do we do with the unreleased material? And right. it's, a, it's a philosophical question, and it's a, it's a moral question and an ethical question. There aren't any easy answers here, but here's my take on it. Mm -hmm. Everything we did in the studio and the time when I was with him was something Prince was proud of. There were rare exceptions when we would record something that he really didn't like. He'd hold up three fingers in a W symbol, and that stood for weak. And when he held up those three fingers, it meant weak. And it meant I was to take a Sharpie and write on the tape box a big W with a big circle around it. He would say, this one is weak. Don't ever let me pull that out of the vault again. He would take some of those things, stash them in the vault. And then later, if he needed a track for the time or one of his protege bands, he might pull something like that out, discover what was weak about it and revise it and put it back in the vault. I, I feel strong in this opinion because I was with Prince uh, the one fateful day when he recorded what I thought was one of the most beautiful songs he had ever, ever recorded. And then after we finished it, 24 hours later, he erased it top to bottom, erased every single track on it, because that was an instance where he didn't want people to hear this. If it went in the vault, my belief is he 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 was okay with people hearing it and and that's why i don't i don't feel bad about these posthumous releases i think he'd be proud why did he delete an album that you felt was so great oh it wasn't a full album oh, no, i'm sorry i'm sorry yeah, it, one, yeah a session. one record a song yeah. um uh, who knows why you know not in his head but um, my my best guess is he had just gone through a very long uh, and difficult breakup oh, okay with uh, Susanna Melvoin, Wendy Melvoin's twin sister. They were engaged at one point and the engagement was broken off and it was just really bad. And I kept waiting for him to write a or 10 breakup songs about it. And he wasn't, he was doing all these party dance songs. And then one day we went into the studio on a quiet December morning and uh, he we recorded this breakup song called Wally. And it was beautiful and he was showing vulnerability. He was showing that he was hurt. He erased it afterward, I believe, because he chose what aspects of himself to show to the public, as every artist does. You keep some things for yourself, you share the rest. He didn't want to share that. He wanted to get it out of his body. He wanted to record it. He didn't want to share it. I see. So you're right. Uh, two more questions on the subject, um, and that segues neatly into something else I wanted to ask you. Nobody, nobody was more successful at cultivating a mystique than Prince, but at the end of the day, he was a person. Can you think of any one detail, large, small, relevant or irrelevant, about Prince as an actual human being that might surprise people? Oh, you might have been friends with him if you had gone to high school together. He was 
He was smart, high native intelligence, uh, sensitive as artists are, very observant as artists are, reticent, quiet, kept his opinions to himself, but observed everything, was sensitive to the feelings of others, had a great sense of humor. I always thought of him as having a really warm heart wrapped in um, a protective coating that uh, made it hard to to get to, to know him well. But he was funny as hell. He had a great sense of humor. He was nearly always in a good mood. And those times when he was in a bad mood, to his credit, he got even quieter. He wasn't one of those people, at least not the prince I knew, to, 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 he didn't scream or shout or throw things or cuss at people. He rarely, 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 rarely used um, profanity. When he, when he was in a bad mood, he got quiet. He got dark. Um, he was respectful of authority. Uh, he had a lot of great qualities, which is one of the reasons that I and others uh, talk so, so often and so warmly about him today, because I, I admired him and I liked him. Uh, do you feel like you contributed anything um, to a, a Prince recording that we would have heard? Large, small, a tiny little 30% more reverb on a Tom, anything that you now listen to and go, I mean, it's Prince. It's Of course it's Prince's, but that little bit, that's me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there are always things. Um, artistic constructs are, are bi-directional. So any artist is going to tell you that everything influences you. So the people you're around, and because I was Prince's recording engineer and he recorded every day, we were together a lot. I had an influence on him. It's, it's safe to say, as did everything in his world. And his world was actually, in terms of number of people, rather small because he needed to keep it that way for his creativity. So certainly I and staff members and girlfriends and band members were all an influence. As far as the technical manipulation, that's something that um, just like a painter learns how to push paint around on canvas, an engineer learns how to push sound around to make something that's pleasing to you. Now, Prince taught me his ear. So the sound I was getting was Prince's ear. But my own ear uh, influenced that. And, and you turn a knob or push a button, you dial in a, a sound on a piece of gear, you're asking yourself, what is good? What does good sound like? And it's always no, 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 until you move that knob to the just right position and you say, yes, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm listening for. That's our sonic signature. And uh, every engineer has one it's got to feel good we all enjoy you know the respect of our peers when your peer is prince it's got to feel good when he goes no 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 and then you get to the yes that's a that's a nice yes to feel and see from the other side of the glass sure you know i was young he was young we were we were all his whole crew pretty much was in their 20s back then in the 80s and uh he hired us and he paid us well and he worked harder than any human I've ever seen before. So yeah, you, you wanted really badly to, to make him happy and to help keep that engine, that train running at the speed at which it ran in those days. Uh, uh, pretty great. Every record maker or artist, artist should have the experience of seeing what it's like at the very top when, when you're on top of the world. 
for that brief period in the music business when you can be, to see what it's like when you're making a record and you know it will be listened to by millions of people. Not many musicians experience that. Uh, it's it's elevating, shall we say, uh, and it's and it's terrifying because <laughs> it's all going to go away at some point, as as popular music does. After Prince, you worked with artists like David Byrne. You produced um, the the career highlight of the Bare Naked Ladies, uh, and then your life and your career took another sharp turn. When and why did you feel like you were? You know, you you were you were made in that industry. Why did you feel like you were just done spending your days in dark recording studios? You know, it's a funny thing. I loved and still love making music so much. I love musicians. I love making records. But I began to experience something I had experienced when I was a kid, which was a calling. When I was a kid, I had that powerful instinct that told me I would really love a career as a record maker. And so when your brain is always always going to one place, it's really nice if you can put your body there too. So my daydreams and fantasies involved being in the studio. So I got in the studio. And then as, as I got into my late 30s, early 40s, I began fantasizing more and more about um, a life pursuing questions of the natural world. I imagined what it would be like to look at data spreadsheets and looking down the lens of a microscope and working with animals, perhaps in, in behavioral tests. And I, I fantasized and daydreamed about that so much so that it was time to, to put my body where my brain was and, and, and see if I could go to college and earn a degree and do research. So it happened. I was able to make that happen. Well, before you went to college, you needed to get a, a high school degree. Is that correct? Yeah, I uh, I, yeah, I dropped out of high school and got married when I was young. Uh, my my home life, my childhood was it was it was great, but my my poor mother suffered a long illness and passed away when I was young, and uh, it's it's hard for a man to raise four kids as my dad did, and so we were kind of on our own. There was no money for college or anything, so. I kind of thought when I was 17, out of hell with this, and <laughs> just left high school and went on and, and uh, started adult life. And your education culminated in getting your doctorate in music, cognition, and psychoacoustics, one or both. Uh, doctor, what are those? So they are two halves of a bidirectional system that is concerned with hearing and what happens in our brain when we listen. Psychoacoustics is the bottom-up process of how acoustic pressure waves in the air move your eardrum in and out, move little things inside the cochlea up and down and in and out, get converted from essentially an analog signal to a digital signal of nerve spikes, which becomes a pattern in your brain that you interpret as a sound, how that happens. And it's and it's 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 thrilling and exciting to to study, but that's psychoacoustics. That's the bottom up process. The top down process is music cognition, and that concerns all the thinking and the deciding that we do when we're listening to or playing or writing or dancing to music. How we learn it, how we memorize it, when we develop it as children, um, how we form preferences, how we feel emotions to it. All of that is music cognition. I 
as a, as a as a music lover and as a songwriter, I've always felt like I have just as much music theory as I want. My instructor kind of forced me. He's like, "Okay, I'll teach you Motley Crue, but first we're going to learn your you know the Mixolydian mode." And I'm very happy with what I know, and I'm sort of happy with what I don't know because although there's built-in limitations to that, it sort of keeps the magic alive. I think I ultimately subscribe to the theory that as much as you want to know how the magician does the magic trick, it, it might lose the magic if you find that out. Your book sort of argues strongly for the opposite, that understanding how you experience music will help you enjoy music that much more and be able to seek out music you will enjoy that much more. Is that about right? I think so. And thank you for recognizing that. When I um, began exploring music in the brain as a student, <laughs> it just made music even more exciting for me. It Understanding this marvelous thing that happens, and especially understanding how individualized and personalized it is, yeah. just expands your idea of what music is and of what music love is. So about that, it's funny, actually, I want to ask you, someone who just was trying to call me a moment ago, must know that I'm talking about him right now. Uh, one of my best friends, he and I grew up together, are, you know, you, you kind of have your two big waves of music, right? There's the stuff that's in your life that you don't choose when you're a kid, which has a big, big impression on you. I, Paul Simon, is, and many songwriters will say this. He's like, there's records I heard when I was four years old and nobody but me can tell, but I'm just rewriting those records over and over again. And they know that they don't sound like it to you, but I know that's what they are. And Bob Dylan says the same thing about his formative influences. But then there's the second wave when you, you go through your little teen rebellion and you get some hormone imbalance and you find you say this is my generation and you find your stuff my buddy and I put it this way we went on a cross-country trip with one another and for three straight weeks I don't remember a ton of disagreements about which cassette we were going to put into the 82 Oldsmobile next we largely <laughs> agree on the Pixies and the Smiths and a couple of you know uh, tentpole bands now, 25 years later, our text thread is littered with one of us suggesting music to the other and, and the other and the other one going, yeah, I get it. It's not really for me. I, I feel like um, if someone I know really well, I have similar taste with says, watch this movie. I bet you really like this movie. I probably will at least kind of like it. Ditto for books. For music, it's an absolute coin flip. <laughs> So yeah. I so you say in the book you talk about the seven dimensions of your listener profile how on a deep level would you explain how and why we are so incredibly individuated when it comes to the music we respond to So it starts forming as you said in your youth and positive and negative experiences are teaching you what to seek out more of and what to Avoid. Uh, music is processed along with uh, everything else. So let's say you're four years old and you're hearing a song. You might be hearing it in the car when you're on your way to, I don't know, Disneyland or something. You're, you're 
feeling great. And you have those feel-good neurotransmitters coursing through your body, and that song comes on the radio. Now, even if you're four years old, that pattern of electrochemical activity in your brain is going to get encoded along with these feelings of this is great. And likewise, you're having a bad day or a rough time, and the song might be on in the background, and you might associate that song with something that is unpleasant or aversive or needs to be avoided. So it starts when we're very young. Um, when we're children, we're starting to um, figure out how music in our environment is representing our tribe and our, our, our people, our society and our culture. So you're just beginning to recognize that kids who like music that you like probably have something in common with you. You'll probably get along with this kid and you're starting to actually be suspicious of kids who like music that is totally different than what you like. So our tastes are forming in youth, in adolescence, when we're teenagers. That's when there's nothing more important to us than figuring out who we are in the social scheme of things. So that's when we're really eager to nail it down and be able to say to the other kids, I like metal, I like punk, I like alternative, I like dance music, whatever it is, because you want a sense of belongingness. People who are involved with music, like musicians and record makers, are going to keep doing that process as they get older. Most people, their taste in music solidifies uh, kind of around their teenage or college years, and that's the music they stick with. As far as the individuality of your profile, the book is describing seven dimensions of music and aesthetic art that can independently in our brains give us a treat of dopamine or opiate release independently. So when you ask people, what kind of music do you like? Most of the time they're gonna say, I've got really eclectic taste. And that's because some of the records you love are chosen for their lyrics. Some are chosen for their rhythms. Some are chosen for their style. Some are chosen for maybe their, their performance virtuosity. We're all gonna have these sweet spots on these seven dimensions that form due to these uh, events that may have caused us to experience great joy in our youth, which can then trigger a similar joy later on in life. Uh, I, I know I'm long-winded, but let me just say briefly, give you no, an example. Ahead, when I was a kid, uh, Motown was, was in, in the 60s. Motown was pretty prevalent, you know, that was up there on the pop charts. But my listener profile is not especially fond of pop music. I'm, I'm, I'm seeking out a little bit more novelty, something a little, shall I say, cooler or hipper. Uh, it's just always been that way. Uh, I was about nine years old the first time I, I danced to a James Brown record. And I remember thinking, this is the shit. This, this is what I'm talking about. That is not a conscious choice. I tend to think of that as a recognition that this record I'm hearing right now is matching something that is integral to my psyche. Um, how the substrate of that forms in our youth is still a mystery that's being uncovered, but it's there. We all have our taste. Well, right. We all have our milieu. There's a reason why most people can agree on the songs that were really, really popular when they were little, but one would guess or maybe even hope that at the core of it all, we do just have 
a self that's independent of the culture and the times in, in, in yes. which you were raised and that that is you're responding to both the external stimuli of the music that you're around but also just the stuff that just 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 moves you it's interesting to me that i'm not a beatles or stones person i'm a genesis person <laughs> like i said i've very highly questionable musical taste but somebody who is so cerebral about music that you have a doctorate in music you teach music you've written a book about you know classifying how we respond to music that you are a stones person not a Beatles person. It just, it, it, the two are sort of incompatible to me that you're saying it. You, you've kind of dedicated the second half of your professional life to intellectualizing a groove that just kind of makes your butt shake. Yeah. The, uh, the, the funny thing about, about music listening that's so beautiful is just how private it is. Concerts notwithstanding. Yeah. When we choose a, a record to listen to. It's going to be three or four minutes long, that that song. And you put on those headphones, you put on that record, and you go, if you like this music, you go into your own head. And this has been shown in, in, in studies, neuroimaging studies. You go into your own head and you light up brain circuits that are involved with your sense of self, your self-image, self-awareness. Of all the art forms, music is the most private and personal. The act of listening takes place privately in our heads. It's less, um, it's simpler and, and, and less, it requires less of a commitment than watching a movie or reading a book or going to an art gallery and wandering around and viewing art. Music becomes, when we love it, the music of us, it becomes this personal experience. Um, when we are being honest with ourselves about what excites us in music, I think that's as just as simple and plain as being honest with ourselves about who we're attracted to. In the final chapter of the book, I'm equating falling in love with a record to falling in love with a person. How do we know who's going to just walk into a room and, and just light up our Christmas tree. Why these features? Why this quality in this person? Why do you like this and not that? Um, it's a complicated question to answer. So I, I'm not offering a specific answer in the book, but just saying that those mysteries are there and they are deep and we should respect our individual tastes. You in talking about specific pieces of music, to talk about music in general, the first uh, concrete example that you use in the book is the Shags, um, mm -hmm. which is, you could have given me five million guesses as to where you would have started. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't have started with the Shags. Let me just play a quick clip of the song that you talk about in the book for the uninitiated, uh, a classic example of outsider art three sisters with uh, extremely limited um, exposure to music outside of their living room under the forceful guiding hand of their dad wrote a bunch of songs and went into a studio and this isn't it you couldn't make songs on your phone in those days you couldn't go buy a $300 Tascam 4 track this was a real commitment to go find a recording studio and set up microphones and commit it to tape and this is a little taste of what they came up with when you're far away, you are always in my dreams. And when 
I think everybody who was uh, unacquainted has got the idea. Why did you start with the Shags? Well, in the book, I'm describing these seven dimensions of music listening. And I started with the first one uh, that is most understood by record makers, and that is authenticity. Authenticity has to do with our perception of where we think those performance gestures are coming from. Mm -hmm. Shags are really important to professional record makers because they illustrate something that we're at risk of forgetting. The shags are to music what a child's finger painting is to art. The shags aren't going to win any Grammys. They don't make great music. They can't tune their instruments. They can't sing or play in time. The shags are musically naive, but what they represent is that desire to communicate musically. I've got instruments in my hands, and I've got a microphone in front of me, and I'm going to play, and I'm going to sing in rhyme, and I'm going to tell you something about my life. Just like a little child's Finger painting is saying, here's mom and here's dad and here's the house and here's my dog. It's not good art. It's the pure intentionality of wanting to share in a work of art. This is what my world is like. So when we listen to the shags, we're reminded of what that waist down, that heart only perhaps gesture sounds like. As my friend, uh, the musician Tommy Jordan from Gagita said, the wrong note played with gusto always sounds better than the right note played timidly. The shags play with gusto. Their heart is in it. And that's going to connect with listeners in a way that a perfect performance that is utterly soulless will not. We don't need machines to make music for us. We, we want the human touch. The shags are nothing but the human touch. Is there a a trick to uh, either you know life coaching or knob twiddling to to get that you know when you're very often if a, a band is recording a song you're going to be doing lots and lots of takes of a song that you probably you might have demoed weeks or months ago that you may have been playing live at least in a rehearsal space for months for me it's um one of my pet peeves is the clearly over-rehearsed yeah, yeah, or whatever, you know, the song, I don't know why this comes to mind, but the gigantic song Unbreak My Heart by Tony Braxton at the end, she has her big flourish, say you'll love me again. And to me, I'm like, I don't know if you were singing to a guide vocal or if you were just read. It's 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 the most emotional part of the vocal. And it sounds so rote to me that it bugged me every time that I heard it. But sometimes that's the facts. I mean, I, I was there in a band where we just had one or two songs that people kept on believing in. So we kept on getting new managers who'd have us demo the same song again. And by the mm -hmm. end, I felt like you could hear we've recorded this song three times. Is there a way to manufacture authenticity when the song is actually not fresh for the artist anymore? That's so good. And that's it. That's definitely an insider's perspective on what it's like to take a very familiar object and to perform it in such a way that it either sounds fresh to the listener or the listener at the very least believes right. you, yeah. believes that, that your gestures are, are authentic. Uh, stage actors do it all the time. You might right. have a play that's very successful and you're saying the same lines night after night after night. How do you do that without just phoning it in? You have to, the performer has to learn the trick of going deep into your own psyche, tapping into something 
And that's something that they tap into is intentionality. What am I trying to communicate to you? What do I want you to know from these words and these chord changes and this melody and this groove? What am I trying to say to you? This is why the shags are important to us, because that's all they've got. That's all they've got. It's not filtered through the boredom of, of technique or the boredom <laughs> rehashing this material. Um, in the studio, you, you asked about tricks. And in the studio, uh, what the producer needs to do is hold a mirror up to the performers and tell them, this is what it sounds like to me. This is what it sounds like to us in the control room. I can hear that you guys are bored. I can hear that you're not into it. I can hear that your minds are wandering. How mysterious is that? How can we hear that? Don't know. But studies of intentionality in art show that we can hear it. We can tell what you meant to do. Yeah. We can tell when you overshot the mark and got too excited and when you undershot the mark and didn't get excited enough, um, uh, there's a lot of psychology that's involved in in record making, and the producer is acting like the director on a on a film and, and knowing when to when to say cut and when to say we got it and when to say sorry we need to do this again we didn't get it. It's funny I know in in my line of work people will tell you sometimes that they can enjoy listening to uh, a podcast about a subject they don't care about because they can tell that the two or three people who are talking about it care about it very deeply. And yeah. and, and, th and that is actually a really infectious thing. We're, we're wired to get excited about something that somebody else is excited about. And you can feel, yes. and, and if you can feel that, then you can feel its absence as well. Yes, and it is possible to overshoot the mark. Yeah. It, just as it's possible to overact, <laughs> it's possible to overperform musically. So there is kind of a sweet zone in there where those performance gestures feel authentic, sincere, real, and it is contagious. And the listener picks up on that and uh, has a chance anyway. Of, of feeling something from the performance. Earlier, you mentioned the Beatles and the Stones, and uh, those are an example of two different artists whose um, performance gestures, to my ears and to a lot of ears, come from different places. So the Beatles are well-trained, more cerebral artists coming from the neck up, as we would say in the studio. Whereas the Rolling Stones, they're, they're patterning their, their work after the early blues artists. So they're coming from the gut. They're coming from the belly button. And some of us uh, prefer music that comes from the waist down or from the heart, whereas others prefer a more cerebral performance. I'm one of the former. I, I like my gut bucket blues more than I like a more carefully controlled yet virtuoso musical style. There was a side note in the book of um, regarding the phenomenon of I may or may not say this correctly musical anhedonia. Yeah, the, I don't know that I was familiar with this phenomenon. Can you tell everybody a bit about it? Yeah, and he, musical anhedonia refers to an inability to get any pleasure from music. Now, people who have this, they get pleasure from other things like yeah. food or movies or whatever, but music just leaves them utterly cold. It's not quite the same as tone deafness. People who are tone deaf uh, also rarely get any pleasure from music. Certain circuits 
up there, higher order brain circuits just merely aren't uh, making the connection between a musical stimulus and the release of dopamine. Uh, my co-author, Ogi Yogas, his wife has musical anhedonia. She doesn't care for it at all. Like if you ask her, what is your favorite song of all time? Does she simply not have an answer? Or is it just that was what played at my high school dance? And so I, I don't think she would have an answer. I've never asked her, but she just has zero interest in it. Now, I knew a woman years ago who was tone deaf. And uh, I didn't know at the time that she was tone deaf, but we were at a party. And it was late at night, and we were all talking about music. And this woman asserted that nobody anywhere at any time liked music ever. And we just teased her. We said, oh, you just, you know, you're nuts. And she said, no, 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 nobody likes music. You're all faking it. You're just pretending to like it because you think it's cool, but nobody likes it. I was an undergrad in college at the time, and as she was saying this, I realized she she's tone deaf and she doesn't know it. She she thinks that her response to music is uh, the same as everyone else's. She really was completely unaware of the joy you could get from listening. A composer, I forget which one, one of the biggies, probably German, said uh, something to the effect of, surely without music there would be reason to go mad. And uh, it struck me enough that I use it as a yearbook quote. Now I can't remember who said it in high school. Um, those people, I, I, I still agree with that. Without music, there's reason to go mad. Those people don't have music. I mean, it's there, but what good is it to you? That's absolutely baffling to me. I, I think you say in the book that between 5 and 10% of the population probably suffer. I mean, I'm going to say suffers from mm -hmm. this. I didn't know that somebody listening to this is nodding their head along and going, yeah, yeah, music. I mean, I get it. Some of it's cute. Some of it's pretty, but who cares? That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I've, I've known people like this with, with food, by the way, mm -hmm. who are mm -hmm. utterly indifferent. They say, take me to a place that has, you know, a nice dining room because I don't care about the food. This seems even worse. I don't have a question. I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away by this phenomenon. It's, it, it is really interesting and it's understudied. Tone deafness is well studied. Yeah. At least it's been mapped out and we know the abilities and the inabilities of folks with tone deafness. But musical anhedonia isn't at this time well studied in the uh, music psychology community yet, uh, except that fact that I, that I shared with you that yeah, these people can experience pleasure, dopamine release to other forms of stimuli, but not to music. Now, in the book, I'm describing the auditory path that comes into our left and right ears and goes up through circuits that first analyze, what am I listening to? You're analyzing the timbre, the musical thumbprint of classical or jazz or rock music or whatever it is. What, what are the instruments? And then it splits off and it goes to circuits that are involved with processing the lyrics. For most of us, it's over on the left-hand side of our brains, Processing the rhythm for most of us up top here in the motor cortex, and then processing the melodies in the, the right-hand side of our brain. When we're processing melody, we're processing the relationship among adjacent pitches. And we are, if, if we're not impaired, we are picking up on what that melody is saying. Because when we were little kids and we were infants when we were first born, we've learned how people modify their voices to calm us down or to warm us or to amp us up. So we're listening to those dynamic 
loudness changes and the pitch changes, and we're getting an emotion from it. But imagine if the circuits that connected that processing region to the emotion regions of our brain was disconnected or had very few wires, so to speak. You'd hear it, you'd probably report on it, but it just wouldn't give you any joy whatsoever. The last thing I wanted to get your opinion on, because uh, you obviously are coming from a, a different place on this than I would be uh, in a, a really informed place, is what I perceive, and I think what most people would agree on, is the 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 dominance nowadays in contemporary mainstream music of the studio as the instrument. You know, and, and it's funny, I uh, was talking to my son's getting into guitar playing. So we were talking about Les Pauls and I was like, well, there is a Les Paul and I can play you his music. And before him, there's no multi-track recording. And think about what changes when you have multi-track recording. I don't need to tell you about this sort of thing. It seems to me that uh, increasingly the sound of music and the aura that it can be created with effects, uh, reverbs, filters, etc., has become as important, if not more important, in a lot of mainstream music than musicality, performance, in many cases even having distinctive melodies. And people have been complaining about studio as an instrument for as long as people have been using it as one I don't wasn't around for the criticism of Soft Cell and Tainted Love, but I, I can pretty much imagine. And I think that's an awesome song, but it does seem like the wave has just kept growing and growing and growing. And what I hear now, even when the music is more forceful than like what we used to call new age, I feel like I hear a lot of soundscapes more mm -hmm. than I hear songs. Do you perceive the same thing as somebody who can appreciate studio technique far more than I would ever be able to? Do you like it? What do you make of that? Because I don't... I mean, there's always going to be a place for somebody who wants to do the the uh, Jack White thing and fly in the other direction and make it sound as raw as possible. But the mm -hmm. thrust of the music industry, the music world, and what young people want, dream of creating, seems to me to be soundscapes. Do you, mm. do you feel the same thing? And what do you make of that as somebody who also just loves music? Yeah, that is... You're right. And, and music is constantly changing, as all art forms are. And it's heading in a direction that is incorporating more and more abstraction. Abstraction is when you, um, when, when, a, when a thing, an idea, a concept is expressed by individual parts that themselves do not reflect that thing. <laughs> like abstract art might be, um, I don't know, Jean Cocteau or Pablo Picasso drawing a curved line and saying that curved line represents a bull. And you look at that and you go, yeah, I get it. I can see there's his head over there and there's a tail over there. That's abstraction. Yesterday, I, I was reading some Vladimir Nabokov and he was talking about visual art and he referred to the prison bars of abstract art. And I was kind of nodding my head going, yeah, I hear you, Vladimir. Personally, I am more a fan of realistic musical art, of music that's made with real instruments and real human beings that got in the studio and they performed it and played it together. But 
we are in this era of abstract uh, musical art, music that's made in the box, music that's created by uh, by software and and by uh, by digitally just manipulating numbers essentially in order to return to us a sound that evokes this, that, or the other thing. The thing that gives me reason to feel optimistic is an awareness that, yeah, our technology changes really fast, but the human brain doesn't. Human brains still want melody and get rewarded by sequences of pitches. Human brains get rewarded by rhythms. They get rewarded by lyrical constructs. We get rewarded by sounds that appeal to us. Uh, One neuroscientist said, sound is a special form of touch. I couldn't agree more. Mm. So music is going to scratch similar itches, even though the form of it is going to change drastically. Artificial intelligence is going to have a say in the music that we hear in our environment. And, uh, And yet, if people like it and are getting a, a musical reward from listening to it, it's music. It's doing a musical job. Do you think in your lifetime you'll uh, enjoy a, an original piece of music made by AI? I would like to. <laughs> I would like to. I would like to experience that. Yeah. If it works, it works. Uh, when I was starting out in Hollywood, I was 21 years old, and I had a roommate who was older and wiser. She was 23, when she was a young punk. She had red hair, and she used to put pink dye in it, so her, this big curly head of hair that was the like color of a copper penny. She was a punk rocker. Her name was Louise, and she said a sentence that I've never forgotten. She said, all music is valid if somebody likes it. From the mind of a 23-year-old punk, I don't know of anything that's truer than that. All music is valid. It is functioning as music if somebody likes it. Uh, We might say that all food is valid if it is performing the function of food and nourishing a body. Yeah. Uh, Music has a function, and and how we get to that function can take a variety of forms. I wade through and have for my entire sentient life, I wade through a lot of crap to find a perfect chorus. And when I find one, I'm not too particular about where it came from. If it's from the soundtrack of some disposable anime series or if if an algorithm wrote it, I'll take all the great choruses I can get. Yeah, exactly. I think so too. Um, I, I, I think uh, I think Yuval Harari said in that book *Sapiens* that humans invent technology, and then our technology changes us. Yeah, it does. And technology changes a lot faster than a brain does. That's a good thing. So, with the new technology that we have, the form may be very different, but your brain, our brains, are still gonna be looking for the same sorts of treats. Um, if we keep that in mind, we realize, yeah, all is not lost. <laughs> well said. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Susan Rogers, author of a book entitled This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. Thank you so much for your time and for your book. Um, Mike, it's really nice to talk to you. I liked meeting you and having this conversation. So I wish you all the best of luck with your show and everything else. Thank you. Thank you. 